this is the inside of this booklet here. And if you have it, this is underline a phrase that is governing the way I approach what I'm going to do in these three messages. It says here, the purpose of refocus is to unite pastors around a resurgent historical evangelicalism and to equip them to preach the full counsel of God in an age of relativism. And you all know that the phrase full counsel of God comes from Acts chapter 20, verse 27, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he says to them, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the Hassan Bulain to Theu, the totality, the whole, the all, Bulain, translated counsel, plan, purpose, goal, intention, will of God. And, and evidently the phrase, I didn't shrink back, implies it takes some courage because you, if you do it, there might be some difficulty. So evidently the phrase, I didn't shrink back, implies this is not always an easy task. So let me just direct your attention to a couple or three other verses where the phrase boulain, translated counsel, is used. It's, it means the, the intention of the will or the plan of the will or the purpose of the will. For example, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. You don't need to look these up. I'll go too quickly. Uh, Jesus, you delivered up according to the definite boule and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up to be crucified in accordance with a divine boule, plan, counsel, purpose. Another one, Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Pilate. Herod, peoples of Israel, Gentiles were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your boule predestined to take place. So what Herod did, what Pilate did, what the soldiers did, and what the crowds did was all in accord with the boule of God. God planned, purposed, willed, intended, counseled that nails be driven into his son's hands, that crowd say, crucify him, that Pilate wash his hands, and that Herod mock him with a purple robe. All that was the boule, or in accord with the boule, the counsel, the plan. That was part of the totality of the plan. Or one more, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 God works all things according to the boule of his will, the counsel, the plan, the purpose of his will. So God's will, his willing, is governed by a boule. Very interesting way of thinking about it. When God decides to do a thing, he has consulted his boule, his plan. His purpose. So what pastors are told in, in, and what you're told, according to this, is that we should be uniting around a resurgent historical evangelicalism 
and equipping each other, helping each other to preach the fullness of that. And I have wanted to do that all my adult life. What is it? What's the Hassan Bulein, the all council, the whole council, the full, as it's translated here, council. Um, the very least, a starting point at least, I would say, is that we must make clear what is the ultimate unifying council. It's not easy to describe the boundaries of the full council. Maybe in Mark Driscoll's terms, what's in the left hand that you fight for and what's in the open hand that you don't. That's not an easy task. It's not as hard to decide something that is just as important, namely, what is the ultimate Boulet, that gives unity to all the rest of it and according to which God makes choices what to include in it. That we are told in the Bible and I want to tackle under the title of why God created, why God created the universe. Now when I pose the question why, why creation or the goal of God, the boulet of God in creation, I'm thinking not material world only. We have to ask, why is there such a big universe as this? Why are there molecules and atoms? Why are there all the elements? But we also want to know, why is history running the way it is? And why did the world fall? And why was there a Baghdad with a hundred and... 30, 83 people blown to bits, what, day before yesterday? And why was there Blacksburg with 33 people shot dead? Why this world? That's what I'm asking. When I'm asking, what's the boule of creation? I mean the boule of Blacksburg, the boule of Baghdad, the boule of your wife's cancer. And the boule of the incarnation. And the cross. So I want to know, is there anything you're up to, God, that gives unity to all of that? What are you doing? What's the point of everything? That's what I mean by the goal of creation. And I I prayed upstairs with the speakers that few things, if any, have made a greater difference in my life than getting clarity on why God does what he does. The one thing he is always doing in everything that he does. That's what I'm after. And I'll tell you what it is and then we'll look at it in the, in the Bible. The ultimate boule, the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate design of God in the material universe, in the events of history, in the fall, in redemption, in everything he has ever done or ever will do, the ultimate goal, design, purpose, boule, 
is to uphold and display his glory for the maximum enjoyment of his redeemed church from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Period. That's what he's up to all the time in everything he does from the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy, from the fall to the cross to the second coming. He is always doing this as his ultimate goal. So I'll say it again. His ultimate goal is to uphold and display his glory for the maximum enjoyment of his redeemed church from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. Let me say it another way. Just to use some different language. His ultimate goal in all that he does, including creation as a means to it, is the exaltation of his worth in the white hot worship of his worldwide redeemed people. The exaltation of his worth in the white hot worship of his worldwide redeemed people. The three talks that I do here, Lord willing, are all unified. They're not separate. And as I go along, questions will begin to emerge, perhaps, that will hopefully work themselves out in, well, what's depravity and what's faith? You'll see the connection as we, as we go. Now, let me clarify something about the way I just stated that. I grew up in a home with a dad who, who quoted to me 1 Corinthians 10, 31, over and over, just became part of my life. Johnny, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. I didn't have to change my theology as I grew up on that score. But, but my dad never told me in so many words that this wasn't just my duty. This was God's passion for everything he does. And I think... Without that second discovery, we do not pursue our duty with the same liberty and joy and passion until it lands on us. It's God's passion. God pursues his glory in all that he does. And I join him in that pursuit. There are many evangelicals who just get nervous when you start talking like that. That God is supreme in his own affections. That the person that God is most excited about is God, contrary to the second song we just sang. I'm just going to plead with with your worship leaders and, and this one that... We either change that last line or don't sing that song anymore. I've studied this song. I went to the website to figure out where this song come from. How did it get written? Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took our fall and thought of us above all. Wrong. He thought of his glory above all on the cross. And I'm going to argue for that before we're done. Now, if, if you want to make it work which it's a very pretty song. 
I love the song. I love every line of the song except the last line. So I went to the web and you know how it got written? It got written in two stages. You can read the story of the song. The first and body of the song is magnificently God exalting. God's worth shines everywhere. And then they were kind of, these two guys were kind of strumming their song and they just, they just made up this reprise on the, on the spur of the moment. And tears got in their eyes about the trampled rose. And then, and then they just got carried away. And, and millions of people are singing this man-centered last line, with, which is really sad. Unless, I'm, I'm trying to bail this song out so you don't have to feel so bad because we've all used it. Um, maybe the word all there, he thought of us above all, means um, all creation. All other creatures. That would be okay. So if that's what you mean, preach it, make it plain, because God always thinks of himself above us. He is always more important than us. His glory is always supreme, not us. And that's what has to be made clear in radically self-centered America. And probably, I don't know anything about Canada except it's north. Probably radically self-centered Canada as well. So, sorry about that if I ruined the song for you. But we just got to make some hard calls along the way. We... I just, I'm on my case. We got three worship leaders, three campuses, and I meet with them and I say, guys, above all, <laughs> get the theology right. I love good tunes. I love good music and I love power and I love zeal and I love passion, but I love truth first as a means to that end. So get it right. Now, the goal is God's supreme and ultimate boule is that there be a display and an upholding of his glory for the maximal enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And what I want to do now is to blitz the Bible for about six or seven minutes on this. And I'll go so fast, you won't be able to look up the verses, but you might be able to write them down. But if you try to write them down, you probably won't be listening. These lists, this list that I'm going to give you here is available all over my writings. I've done this so many times, and I just love doing it. So indulge me as I blitz the Bible on God's God-centeredness from cover to cover for about six minutes, okay? And if you wanna, if you wanna get them, you can go to the website and find a place where, where I did this. Cause everything I've ever said is on the website. <clears throat> God created us for His glory, Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Jeremiah 13, 11, he called Israel for his glory. I made the whole house of Israel cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. He rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, 7. 
Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He raised up Pharaoh for his glory. Romans 9, 17. I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God spared Israel again and again in the wilderness for his glory. Ezekiel twenty fourteen. I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nation in whose sight I brought them out. God did not cast away his people when they sinned against him and wanted the king. 1 Samuel 12, 22. Fear not, you have done all this evil, for the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name. You're saved for his name. He thought of you on the cross for his name. That's the order. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. Second Kings 1934. I will defend this glory. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, says the Lord. He restored Israel after exile. Ezekiel 36, 22, for his glory. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name. Now, there's, a, there's one. I just got to pause on that one. Because that really, really, really jars us. I'll read it slowly this time. Thus says the Lord God. This is Ezekiel 36, 22. Thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Meaning, when I save you. But... For the sake of my holy name, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know I am the Lord. That's why I'm bringing you back from Babylon. And that's the way we should feel when we go to the cross. On our face, saved, given maximal joy in God forever. That he might show his power. That he might show his glory off of us. We are the reflectors. He thought of his glory above all when the rose was trampled. Jesus sought the glory of his father in all that he did. John 7, 18. He who seeks his the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there's no falsehood. Jesus told us to do all of our good works for the glory of the Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. John five forty four. How can you believe who seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He said God answers prayer for the glory of God. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified. Why does he answer your prayer? So that his Father might be glorified. Jesus endures the final hours of suffering for God's glory. John 12, 27, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify my name again. 
God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. Romans 3, 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to demonstrate God's righteousness. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous. God forgives our sins for his own sake. Psalm 25:11. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Every good thing that you get from Jesus, you get for God's glory. And that's the way it should work. Nothing, nothing, nothing terminates on you. It is all moving through you to his glory. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. John sixteen fourteen. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus says. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He instructs us that we should do everything for the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God tells us to serve in the church in a way that brings him glory. This verse that I'm about to read is the most important philosophical verse for the way we do ministry at Bethlehem. First Peter 4, 11, whoever renders service. Let him render it in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything we do, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the dominion forever. The giver gets the glory. Therefore, in everything you do, be a receiver. Don't depend on people. Depend on God. Don't depend on yourself. Depend on God. Because when God helps, God gets the glory. First Peter 4.11, Jesus will fill us with the fruits of righteousness for God's glory. Philippians 1.11, he prays, Paul prays, that you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Herod was struck dead because he did not give God the glory. Acts 1223, immediately an angel of the Lord smote him because he did not give glory to God. Jesus is coming again. Why? For the glory of his father and the glory of his name. Second Thessalonians 1 9, those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and marveled at in all who have believed. Jesus ultimate aim is that we see him and enjoy his glory. John seventeen twenty four. Father, I desire also that those whom you have given me may behold my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God's plan is to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And lastly, the new Jerusalem will have no sun. Because the glory of God will be the sun and Jesus will be the lamp. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God is its light 
and its lamp is the Lamb. That's the tip of the iceberg in the Bible. This is not unclear. And it is amazing how many ministries and how many pastors don't make it supreme. So I'm arguing that the reason he created the world and the reason he does everything in the world and the reason he will do everything he does to the end of time and on into eternity is to display and uphold the glory of his name for the everlasting and infinite enjoyment of his people redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, here's, here's the catch for this conference. This conference is about the exclusivity of of Christ. No other name. So here's the turn I want to make in the message. I want to ask the question, all right, if it's biblical to say that the supreme boule, the ultimate boule, counsel, plan, purpose, design, intention of God in all that he does is to display his glory for the enjoyment of his redeemed people from all the peoples. Where does Jesus fit in? And what is the apex of the glory? God is glorious in everything he is and everything he does. But there is an apex to it. God has a special passion that a certain dimension of his glory be known and enjoyed. And it has to do with Jesus. So let me refine my answer to the question, what's the, what's the ultimate boule? What's the ultimate goal? And I would put it like this. The, the apex of the display of his glory is this, that glory shines most brightly, most fully, most beautifully in the manifestation of the glory of his grace. And I'm adding grace. Glory of his grace. And, let's put a finer point on it, The apex of the display of the infinitely valuable glory of God is most beautifully, most fully, most decisively the glory of his grace manifest in the suffering of the Son of God for millions of hell-deserving That's the finest point that I want to put on it. Now, I'm going to unpack that because it's quite shocking. The implications, if you were to believe what I just said, the implications are so shocking for Blacksburg, Virginia, so shocking for Baghdad, so shocking for cancer, so shocking for war, drugs, divorce, that you might not want to follow me there. 
So I'm going to try to unpack it biblically and carefully to see whether you will. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. You can look these up if you're quick. Revelation 13, 8. John writes this. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Will worship, referring to the beast, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. That's a very good literal translation, what I just read. A little awkward, but very literal and good. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So now we do not have creation yet. Nothing has been created yet. And there's a book. So before the foundation of the world, there's a book. It's called the book of the life, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So the lamb is Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to argue with that, I hope. The book is the book, therefore, of Jesus Christ crucified, slain. Therefore, God made the world and he had in view that Jesus Christ would be slain before he created the world. He had in view a people written in the book already for whom he was slain. A people purchased by his blood written in the book. Therefore, the suffering of Jesus was no afterthought. God didn't create a world, hope it would go well for Adam and Eve. And when they fell, said, now what am I going to do? Plan B, a history of redemption climaxing in Christ. Revelation 13, 8 will not allow that thinking. Before the world was, there's a book. And the book is called the book of life. And it's the book of the Lamb, Christ. And he was slain before the foundation of the world. God knows what he's up to. It's the plan. It's the boule. And somehow or other, it fits into this. Everything is for his glory. He's planning the crucifixion of his son before the fall. Second verse to look at. Second Timothy 1 9. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul looks back into eternity, just like John did, and he says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now mark that word. God saved us not because of our works, but according to his own purpose, like Boulay, not the word, And grace, which he gave us, the grace he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave us 
grace. What is grace? Grace is God treating us kindly when we are ill-deserving. So, grace was being given to ill-deserving sinners before the creation of the world. Before the world began, grace was flowing to you. And what kind of grace flows to sinners? Blood-bought grace, and only blood-bought grace flows to redeemed sinners. There's a lamb slain. There's a book. Blood is flowing in the mind of God before he made the world. So you have two things now. There's a book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's one thing there is before creation. And there's grace coming to us before creation. Blood bought, Christ purchased, cross work sustained grace flowing to us before the creation of the world. Now, also, Let's, let's make, let's make this issue more intense. Notice the word, or think back on the word, the lamb who was slain. It's the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That word slain. Sphagidzo. Only used by the apostle John in the New Testament. Always, everywhere refers to the slaughtering of an animal. Slaughter would be a good translation. Slain cleans it up. The book of the life of the lamb whose head is next slid open and bled to death. That's the word he chose for God to think about doing before he made the world. I'm going to slit the neck of the lamb of God. And with the blood that pours out, I'm writing names in a book. All of that before he made the world. The implications of that, brothers, are huge. The plan was, the boule was, the Lamb of God will suffer. The Lamb of God will be slaughtered. That's the plan. I'm going to give you a biblical text that shows the relationship between that and grace But let me just say this first. The reason for such a horrific plan. Son, are you willing? I am willing, Father. I want you to become a man so that I can slit your throat. I am willing, Father. I know it will not be easy. I am willing. Why? Why plan it that way? Before the creation of the world. And the reason is this. The fullest, clearest, surest display of the greatness, of the glory, of the grace of God demands it. The ultimate boule is the apex of the revelation, the display of his glory for the enjoyment of his redeemed people. And the apex of that glory is Grace, and that grace shines most brightly off 
Christ crucified for millions and millions of hell-deserving sinners who hated him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A man might die for a good man, for, for a just man. Per, perhaps for a good man, one might even dare to die. But God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ was slaughtered for us. What, what is going on? Now we're at Ephesians chapter 1, so go there with me. Ephesians chapter 1, to see the link explicitly in the, in the inspired apostle, not John Piper, what I think makes very little difference at all. If you don't see what I'm saying in the Bible, shut your ears. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in him, mark that phrase, before the foundation of the world. We've got this issue again. So there's Christ and in him, in him, we're chosen before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through, now there's the second phrase I want you to mark. First one is in him. Second one is through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. That phrase in 1976 became a Copernican revolutionizing way of teaching Preaching. I wasn't a preacher yet. I was teaching at Bethel and I was teaching through Ephesians. And I saw in verse six to the praise of the glory of his grace as the goal of everything. Verse 12 to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 to the praise of his glory. And I just stood back and said, this is one long, complex sentence But the point is crystal clear. Predestination, election, adoption, redemption, sending the Holy Spirit, sealing. It's all got one goal, one boule, one unifying purpose. Unto the praise. Little princess here looking ahead to other talks that are coming. If you wonder why in my statement concerning the ultimate goal of all things, I include the phrase for the maximum enjoyment of a redeemed people. You wonder where's that, where's that joy piece coming from? It's coming from this word praise. Sad praise, oxymoron. All right. His ultimate purpose is the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Now, get the phrase in Christ from verse 4 and through Jesus Christ in verse 5. And you'll see how breathtaking this is in relationship to the cross. Verse 4, God chose us in him. So we become his By election, in our union with Christ. What's the implication of that? Well, get the next phrase too. 
Verse 5, by God predestined our adoption through Jesus Christ. So is anyone adopted here? I hope you're all adopted. And you're adopted, it says, through Christ. But what does that mean? How is it through Christ that we are adopted? And we know this. We know from other places where adoption is spoken about that adoption happens as a blood-bought privilege. It's, when it says through Christ, it means through his death, through his substitution, through his work on our behalf on the cross. God is able to reach down and legally take sinners into the holy family. Amazing. So don't miss it when it says through Christ or in Christ. It means the crucified Christ. And therefore, if the ultimate goal was the praise of the glory of the grace of God, and that grace could only be experienced through the suffering and the slaughtering of the Son of God, that was the plan before the foundation of the Let's look forward into eternity to feel the full force of this. Revelation 5, 9 to 12. Revelation 5, 9. It's a picture of worship in the future. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. There's that word. You were slaughtered. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. They're praising his worth on the basis of his slaughter. Worthy are you to take the scroll for you were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's where that phrase came from in my effort to define the goal of God. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. Skip a few words. Myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And you know what? They're still singing this in chapter 15, verse 3, which causes me to conclude it wasn't just planned. Before creation, that there would be a slaughter of the Son of God for millions of ill-deserving, hell-deserving people like me. But this act becomes the centerpiece of everlasting worship. We will sing about the slaughter of the Son Forever. What can magnify the importance of an event more? The suffering of the Son will never be forgotten. Sometimes people ask me, will will we remember suffering in heaven? (laughs) It will be the center of our memories. For all eternity... The display of the glory of the grace of God in the slaughtered lamb. The greatest suffering that ever was will be the center of worship. Say that again. The greatest suffering that ever was, ever will be, ever could be. 
will be the centerpiece of everlasting worship for the redeemed. It wasn't an afterthought after the fall. It was the plan. It was the boule. Everything else in the universe is subordinate to this. Now, those are sweeping statements. I'm not throwing them out. I have thought about these sentences for 30 years. Everything in the universe, evil and good, serves the revelation of the glory of the grace of God in the slaughter of the Son. So, what does this imply that I said would be so hard for you to follow? Perhaps, maybe we're already there. I don't know if you're still with me. But it clearly implies that God planned the fall. If you want to use the word permit for the fall in order to make it easier to talk about, he, he didn't ordain the fall into sin. He permitted it. I'm okay with that, provided you have the category in your head that everything God permits, he permits by design. Can you, can you handle that little phrase? Permits by design. In other words, if God sees something coming and could stop it, undo it, not do it, not, not create the world, not create this Adam and Eve, and he goes ahead and does what he knows is going to happen, he's got a plan for what's happening. He knows it's going to happen. He's got a plan. So I'm okay if you want to sneak in the word permit, and, and, and it should be used sometimes. But just know that when you use it, you haven't gotten anybody off the hook. God could have not done what he permitted to happen. This is the world he planned. That's where I'm not sure you're going to follow me. I don't see it any other Way, how do you see? So how do you think about that? I think about it with biblical categories, and here's the category: Genesis 50, verse 20, gives me the category, and I can hear by the murmurs that you know that verse. Many of you, Joseph is sinned against. He's sinned against by his brothers. And they sell him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. And years later, he says, as for you, you meant, you meant evil against me. But, now get your translations right here. It does not say, but God used it for good. It says God meant it for good. The two words are the same. You meant it for evil. That was your boule in it. God meant it. That's his boule in it for good. That's a category. I have to have that category like that. In every sin, God has a boule. He's not. There's nothing. There's no maverick molecule and there's no maverick act of the human will that God doesn't see coming and either allow or cause with a purpose including Adam and Eve. So when I see Adam and Eve bring us all to Blacksburg, Baghdad, when Adam and Eve bring the whole thing down 
And the whole creation is subjected to futility because of this couple and their sin. I say, Adam and Eve, serpent, you meant it for evil. God meant it for the glorification of the Son slaughtered. So, everything he did for us, everything he did for us, the stage is set. Sin has entered the world. Death has entered the world through sin. The creation was subjected to futility and groans. Oh, does it groan. We groan with our diseases. We groan with our kids. Not Google what we want them to do. We groan with our churches. They aren't where we want them to be. We groan with Canada with its small percentages of redeemed people. We groan with the world with its tsunamis and its malaria and its HIV. Does not creation groan? God did that. God subjected the creation to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation would be set free from its bondage to decay and inherit the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God who are redeemed. They become children by the blood. And therefore we will sing of the blood in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. What? An amazing way God has chosen to exalt and display his glory. Let me close um, by highlighting just a couple of things he did and then highlight this word grace one more time. When Christ died, here's what happened. He absorbed the wrath of God and he did it by his suffering. Galatians 3.13. Second, Christ bore our sins and he did it by his suffering, our forgiveness. 1 Peter 2.24. Christ provided perfect righteousness for us and he did it by his sufferings because according to Philippians 2, the climax of his obedience was obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And that's what's imputed to us. Fourth, Christ defeated death and he did it by death and by suffering. Hebrews 2.14. He disarmed Satan, and he did it by suffering, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Christ purchased perfect healing for our bodies, which we will inherit in a measure now through gifts of healing and medical practice, but then fully at the resurrection, and he did it by suffering. He bore our sin in his body, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. And finally, most importantly, summing them all up, saying why they all happened. Why all this justification? Why all this propitiation? Why all this redemption? Why all this forgiveness? He died. He suffered. He was slaughtered that he might bring us to God. This is 1 Peter 3.18. I'll read it to you. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, the reason I end there is this. 
When you read Ephesians 1.6, election, foreknowledge, predestination, in Christ, through Christ, crucified, blood, suffering, all unto the praise of the glory of his grace. You know what inveterate, man-centered hearts do at that point? They take the word grace and after this entire message, go home and say it was all about us. There's some in this room who are, are moving in that direction in your minds right now because you haven't moved into the word grace and asked and gotten a biblical answer for what's that? What's grace? If the whole point of everything is the upholding and the display of the glory of God's grace in the suffering of the Son of God for millions of unredeemed Canadians, if that's the goal of, of all of his purposes, then what is, what is grace at the apex? What does it mean? It means what 1 Peter 3.18 says it means. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, now you could, you could complete that verse by saying that we might experience his grace. And that's true. So what does he say? He says that he might bring us to God. That is grace. The supreme grace of God is enabling sinners like me to know and love and cherish and treasure and enjoy God forever. That's what grace is. That's what salvation is. That's what justification is for. That's what propitiation is for. That's what redemption is for. That's what reconciliation is for. That's what forgiveness is for. It all terminates on the graciously given ability to enjoy God forever. So now the question is, so what is depravity? And the nature of saving faith in view of that ultimate design. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love Christ. Oh, that we could love him more. Oh, that John Piper could love Jesus more. More passion, more intensity, more zeal, more faithfulness, more consistent obedience, more readiness to sacrifice. So work that in me, I pray, and work it in these brothers and sisters who are here. Oh God, please grant your word to have its appointed, gracious effect. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.